Greetings and welcome, everyone. This is the MalwareTech uh, podcast. Uh, this is Dr. Tran uh, with uh, MalwareTech. And returning like a bad case of COVID-19 in the U.S. is uh, Gab Smash uh, today. Yep. Hello, I'm Gabs on your body positive charity case here. <laughs> <laughs> here to report on the news today. So I'm sure there's a background story behind that, and we'll, we'll probably get to that in a little oh, man. bit. <laughs> so today we'll talk about uh, you know the latest uh, ransomware stuff that is going on in the news, the Drovo Rub, uh, Spy Key, as well as uh, a few other uh, random topics. Hey, Trent. So yeah. Did you hear about that one hacker? Which one? I heard he ran somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good that's a good segue and kickoff to the latest ransomware attack to uh, on, on Canon. Um, there was a I guess a hacker group that claimed that they had stolen gigabytes of data uh, from Canon using ransomware, and there was also an outage of part of Canon's I guess image hosting service, uh, where I guess thumbnails and images were encrypted, so people weren't able to access files that uh, or images that they stored on their cloud service. The weird thing, though, is this organization that claimed they stole data said they're not involved in this outage that was of, of their image hosting service. So there seems to be a huge disconnect of what the group is claiming versus what customers are actually seeing and, and experiencing. I heard it was like a weird cloud misconfiguration, like migration of data along, like that just seemed to happen at a bad time, but it doesn't really seem like a ton of people really have any idea what's going on. I'm wondering if they, uh, they encrypted the network and that led to some, some loss of something that they needed to keep their hosting up and it was a, an unintentional knock on effect. It's very, I think it's po very possible that's, that's the case because I'm sure the hackers or the group claiming responsibility for stealing the data had an objective in mind, but they don't know the architecture of that application or platform know well enough to know what their attack would actually do elsewhere in the system. So yeah, I, I think you're kind of right about that. Yeah, I've seen cases where they've they've encrypted something like an SSL cert or an SSH key, and that's just taken down an entire system. So it's not uncommon. Obviously, it's actually, I don't really know if it's their intention or not. Like, the more damage, the better, because the more likely they are to pay the ransom. But generally, they try not to take down absolutely everything. Unless it was unintentional, and then they didn't know, and then they just don't want anything to do with it, because if there's all this unintentional damage that can't be decrypted, <laughs> with the, then the, why yeah. would they claim responsibility? I mean, that's always the worst look, is if you actually damage something, because... I've seen a couple of ransomware actors where something's gone wrong and they've they've encrypted and corrupted a file and then they've had to go and change the entire group name and their ransomware name so that they're not associated with these previous actors that <laughs> uh, like their ransomware isn't decryptable even if you pay because it corrupts the data. It's kind of like damage control for their own brand. Pretty much because I mean ransomware you, you think for criminals that brand doesn't matter but it does a lot. Like, uh, if you're a seller, you need a good reputation to sell your stolen data. And if you're a ransomware actor, you need a good reputation for actually coming through with the ransom. Because if you don't, then there's no, there's no point in taking the risk of paying if there's a, if there's a good chance they don't get their data back. Mm -hmm. 
Gabs, you've never had to deal with ransomware, have you, directly? Not really. Um, I kind of didn't come in from that side of security, so it's still not something I've had a ton of exposure to. But it's, it, I guess everyone just hears about it so often. It seems like it's either it's hitting everyone or it's always in the news or maybe it's just the media hyping things up. No, it's it's definitely a big thing. Now, I'm just, I'm so bored of it. It's <laughs> every time there's a big, like it's a big news story that XY big company has been hit with ransomware and every other week it's another big company hit with ransomware and the attack is the same. The, the tools are the same, like the methodology is the same and it's just the same thing on different companies and every time it's just the buzz of InfoSec and it's it's just nothing new. It's the, you could write a template generator to generate articles about ransomware attacks just by changing the company name. And I just up. don't understand how it's consistently interesting. What do you think about the number, like the percentage of these companies that is actually paying the ransom? Because I feel like that's a huge number and that's interesting to me. It's expected because these aren't your standard ransomware uh, like the old the old school ransomware where it would hit your computer, it would encrypt your computer. And then if you had a cloud backup or if you had a, a USB drive with your, your files on it, you were fine. These these actors are going through your network. They're finding everything they can encrypt, every backup you have, every server you have. It's not like a computer or two being encrypted. It is everything on your entire network. And at that point, you have two choices. Is Do you take your company out of action for like eight months or do you just pay the ransom and it's just such an easy business decision at that point is like a million two million even 10 million is worth a lot less than potentially a year of operational costs and oper and just lost revenue makes sense yeah it seems like they're much more methodical now than than before where it's kind of spray and pray and now it's a little bit hey let's try to get as much as we can and do it in a way where they can do, they can maximize um, their, their footprint. Yeah. The first time you see it, it's, it's pretty interesting. But then after that, it's just the same attack over and over. Like often they will, they'll get an initial foothold, be that an insecure VPN, uh, a router, which was exposed or a, or an insecure windows machine. And then they will, uh, they will escalate their privileges to the highest level on that machine. And then also move laterally onto, say, a domain controller, a backup server, just anything with a real control over the network. And then from there, they just worm their way through the entire network until absolutely everything is just screwed. And it's it's quite interesting to see them in action. Like if you ever do like an IR on a ransomware attack, it's interesting to see what they did. But after you've seen it once, it's it's just the same thing pretty much every time. Do you think that because they are more methodical now, it's actually, it gives more mature companies a little more time to actually stop them because for them to be able to traverse and get to everything, it theoretically is going to create a lot of noise for a team to see what's happening before, I, I guess, the, the command to go encrypt is. Do you think that just gives them more, potentially companies more time to react? Oh, yes and no. Is um. The main problem is they don't pick up the initial entry. And if they don't pick up the initial entry, why would they pick up anything else? Like if you have good alerting, you're probably gonna get a trigger on the 
whatever the first thing they do is like what system they affect um if they breach your firewall your vpn you would know but the problem is they just don't have the alerting and some of these attacks i've seen it's been uh three months between the initial infection and the ransomware actually encrypting the files and the entire time the attackers have been in the network poking around stealing data and they just the company has no idea and then they they get ransomware and they're like holy shit and then they call in an ir team and the ir team is just walking back this chain of like hundreds of different malware drops that goes back to like the fucking 90s and i just i think there is a big space where you can detect and stop it it's just most companies do not have the capabilities to do that that reminds me of one of the metrics that the the Mandiant report every year uh, kind of measures and, and shows the the dwell time, how long an adversary is in the environment before they're discovered. And I remember just four or five years ago, the average dwell time was 245 days or something like that. And that's just Jesus. average. <laughs> um, it's, I, it's terrifying. It's surprisingly high. Like you would, I don't know, you, I guess, hear incident response and you think that these teams are on it and they are but the reality is is that a lot of attackers are getting really really good at making themselves hard to trace and um i mean there's a lot of value that comes from laying low so yeah laying low and and also just companies not really having the abilities to even detect something that's going on or be able to correlate that something suspicious is, is correlate that back to something else to realize oh crap there's someone traversing our environment uh, I, I think what's promising, though, is I think one of the later reports, maybe last year or so, that number went down considerably down to 45 days. So I think that's actually somewhat promising. But at the same time, I, I, I don't recall what their sample size was for this metric. It may just be selective sampling where the data that companies are willing to share or the organization that are working with Mandiant or other similar organizations, they're already thinking about this and that they are putting controls and detections in place. But I, I'm kind of curious what the, the real number is for all types of organizations, not just organizations that are thinking about this. So that kind of corresponds with, I have a, the conference talk I've given a couple of times this year, and I'm actually giving it at besides Boston next month. But um, it's about, and it's kind of relevant, it's about COVID incident response, how we respond to pandemics, what the legislation is around that, um, compared to kind of the lack of legislation surrounding um, data breaches and uh, really big incidents that affect organizations and kind of what each industry can learn from each other in those circumstances. I think there are things from incident response, blue teaming that we could actually put into play with uh, the pandemic response that would make it a little bit more efficient. And I think there are ways that we initiate in a response to a pandemic that could be really helpful to put into the, um, the working area for incident response. Yeah, I think there's so much, so many opportunities for different industries to learn from one another. Um, that it's really great that there are people who have different backgrounds getting into InfoSec, like, like yourself, Gabs, because you are thinking about, we've solved this problem here before, why don't we apply it in this new world a little bit, you know, to, to solve a similar problem using the concept. I think we talked about this in one of the previous podcasts about, 
Henry Ford in the meatpacking plant. That's how he came up with the assembly line. So um, I think there is a lot of value in, in more and more people of different backgrounds getting into, into InfoSec, not just comp sci, not just information systems, et cetera. One wasn't like a virus named a virus because of how similar it acts to human viruses, how it needs to attach to a host and stuff like that. Yeah, because the uh, the early day viruses they, they they're nothing like what we see today. They would uh, they would infect a computer and then they would spread itself to other computers and they uh, either would destroy the data or do nothing at all. But the the main aim was propagation, which is obviously what viruses do. Their their aim is to reproduce. So yeah, the uh, name did actually stem from the medical field, but. I guess it doesn't really get used anymore. You don't really hear people calling malware viruses because it's so different from the viruses back in the 80s and 90s to what we have today. Yeah, you don't even hear people talk about worms that much anymore. Yeah, they're, they're so rare. Like, WannaCry was the last time I saw any actual serious worm do any real damage. There's uh, WannaCry, Conficker, and those are pretty much two of the only ones I can remember from the past few decades. Like everything was very early 2000s. You had like uh, SQL Slammer, which I think was 2003. Um, and then everything else is like back into the 90s when worms were just a regular occurrence. Excuse me, I made a Twitter announcement that um, we're calling them wormy boys from now on. So. <laughs> what, you wormy to... boys? Yeah, wormy boys. <laughs> <laughs> All documentation must adhere to this new standard. Sorry. But uh, um, I don't hate it. <laughs> it's it's funny. I, saw I don't know, like referring to um a stingrays as sea flap flaps, which I thought was great. <laughs> oh, not sea butterflies. My favorite is the uh the snake they call them danger noodles. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. My mom has a t-shirt with like all these different like she's got like the raccoon it says trash panda and like uh i forget what they called a crocodile it was like i don't know if it was like a danger log or something but like murder log murder log that's what it was and they have like all these different names for it, it makes <laughs> me laugh you guys should look up um i'm sure there's a website somewhere but in the way certain languages structure new words is by combining old words together and Isn't that mostly Asian languages? Yes. Uh, and when I was learning Chinese, uh, bits of Chinese, it would they would have like compound words. Like I think yes, was penguin was business business goose. Or goose. Something? <laughs> penguin <laughs> is a business goose. Um, I I absolutely love that. That is just like the coolest thing about the language <laughs> is how they structure words. Well, the, I think there's other couple other cute ones uh, in, in Chinese. Like lobster is dragon shrimp. That makes so much um, sense. Volcano, I think, is Fire Mountain. Yes. Which also makes and, sense. And then I think another, uh, so we have there's Volcano, we have uh, Penguin, there's another one. Oh, yeah, Owl. Owl is Cat-Headed Eagle. <laughs> These are <laughs> eerily accurate. Like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it, I love how poetic sometimes Chinese Chinese is when, when it's when it creates words. And a lot of these words, I never I never like gave second thought to it. Then and then that one day I was I was reading there was this really there's this cool book that kind of creates uh, looks at the Chinese calligraphy and kind of turns them into art to look like the, the animal or the thing it's describing. 
and then it kind of got me thinking about the words that I know. I'm like, oh crap, that's how when I realized like uh, cat headed, like owl was cat headed eagle, just like stuff like that. So it was kind of funny. Here in the US, we have cat dog, which is the worst the show ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like um, ferrets. Some people call them cat snakes, which I thought was hilarious. Oh my God, that reminds me. So one time I was, I, forget, I think it was in Chicago, I was like with a bunch of coworkers and I was pretty drunk and so were they but we were all walking around and like there's a ton of dogs in Chicago and um someone was walking a wiener dog and I got really really excited but I couldn't remember the name for it so I just like grabbed my friend and I was like look it's a long dog and they made <laughs> fun of me for like the- <laughs> they made fun of me for like the next year for it because- let me guess you were thinking of long cat the meme weren't you maybe but I mean it was a long dog I mean they they are obnoxiously long <laughs> just funny i don't know i love when i forget words for things because i come up with some really crazy stuff i couldn't remember um yeah i've forgotten the word again the stuff you put in your in the laundry machine to help clean the laundry detergent yeah that's the one i i I was like do you know where the laundry source is and the shopkeeper's just like laundry source and she's like They probably you thought seen... you were a foreigner, which you are. Which I One am, that didn't yeah. speak English. <laughs> you should have told her, like, that's how we say it in England and, like, convince them. So when they, like, go overseas, they're like... Oh, no, I've done that. I've um, I just <laughs> said things wrong. And then when someone makes fun of me, I just say that's how we say it in England when it absolutely is not. Yeah. Because then people are like, oh, sorry. Do you guys know about that Australian joke uh, that they tell foreigners uh, visiting? Drop bears? No. So there's this there's a there's a creature in Australia. Uh, it's called a drop bear, and they hide in trees. And what happens is, if they hear uh, voices or accents they're not familiar with, they get very defensive and they will attack you. So it's what Australians try to do to uh, basically troll foreigners and visitors to convince them that they have to speak in an Australian accent outside, or they'll get attacked by drop bears. It's the most ridiculous thing. That's great. My, uh, I have a Brita pitcher, which is like my favorite thing ever because I love filtered water. But um, I, I like labeling things, so it has a label on it. It says Earth Sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally gonna do that now. I'm just gonna put really stupid labels on everything yes. in my house. Well, it makes me smile every time I go to get water. It makes me laugh. So like, it's totally worth it. You can also <laughs> just put googly eyes on everything too. I have that on my Roomba. I don't know yes. if you can see him, but um, he has these, they're like the extra large ones you can get, they're like that big, and he has these two like massive googly eyes, and when he bumps into things, they wobble, and it's just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I have these googly eyes, I haven't put them on anything yet, because I haven't found anything cool enough, but they are literally like this big, and they're monster, like, they're monster eyes. They're on like, your car. Either your car or Roomba. Like Roomba is the cutest thing. With I'm not rich, eyes. Marcus. I don't have a Roomba. How how is Roomba rich? It's like less than a normal <laughs> vacuum, and it cleans for you. If I, anything, it's like the poor option. I bought my vacuum for thirty dollars, and I love it. Okay, so I just I I hate vacuuming. I, I would too. either pay like a maid or get a Roomba. So Roomba seems like the less Yeah, Roomba's a cheaper here. option. <laughs> I want to get one eventually, especially because like I my place is small enough that I would be able to cover the whole thing. Like, I don't know. I thought about getting one when I had dogs and everything, but like 
they were huskies, so like it wouldn't have even made a dent. Yeah, it gets I, had to, instantly. I had to actually vacuum every day, but no, my vacuum <laughs> is lime green and I love it. It's my baby and it was $30, so go Bissell. I, I tried to buy a $30 vac and it, it just, it, it died the first use. It lasted for literally five minutes and that was it. It was a single-use vacuum, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the most millennial thing ever, like single-use vacuum. You know, like this is so awful, but like sometimes printers almost seem like they should be single-use. Like my ex and I had this printer and it was like $30. So like every time it ran out of ink, it almost made more sense to like buy a new printer Dude, than it did to ink buy ink. Like, yeah, it costs more than most printers. I had to print a bunch of stuff a while ago and I was going to get a laser printer, but then I ended up like crunched for time. So I ended up just grabbing an inkjet at Walmart and I regret it. I filled the ink four times in like the I last two months. I inkjet printers just because, yeah, because I don't print that often and I'll, I'll do like two, three print jobs for, uh, and then three months later, the cartridges yeah. all dried up. I'm like, ah, oh, crap, they get new cartridges and they're expensive. They're not cheap. Yeah. That's why I prefer well, like, laser. Yes. I want to get a laser. Like every other month I end up printing like a couple hundred pages like without fail because i do like a lot of medical review and stuff and sometimes it's easier to just throw it in a binder and like read it and highlight it than it is to like stare at a screen for like eight hours and on top of working so i don't know i like hard copies I've of never, things never ever owned a printer oh my god i even my court documents i was like signing them with scribbles in ms paint and then uploading them i would never print them off um Wait. We can talk about this. I faxed something the other day. I think it was the first time I've ever sent a fax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to send a fax to, I had to fax in my insurance application for in, in Germany here uh, because I had to get some specialty insurance because I'm still driving around with my US license plates and I have to get, <laughs> I can't go through regular insurance channels. I need to get a special insurer for that. So yeah, that was a real pain. Yeah, it was, I had to fax some like documentation the other day and like the guy left me a voicemail I was like hey I need you to fax this and I was like like I don't even know where I could find a fax machine at this point to use like do they even exist like do people still buy them do places still have them like does the uh, library have one I was so confused but then I was looking and you can actually send a fax from your phone so I thought that was kind of cool like yeah, yeah they're also there's... online services as well yeah, that's, that's what, what I, I ended up doing is like you can email the document and then the service like converts it to the, the boomer technology and then it sends it out. You say boomer technology? Yes. <laughs> that's hey, what some I of call... our listeners might be boomers too, so <laughs> shouldn't discriminate. I'm not discriminating. Boomers. It's just it is their technology. I'm a millennial. I'm I don't even know almost, what I am. I'm the very bottom of millennial. I'm like a year away from Gen Z. I mean, which do you, would you rather be? Honestly, I don't know. I, I feel like they're very similar. Well, and since I like TikTok so much, I kind of feel like I'm like assimilating to Gen Z now. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I watch it and it like it feels like more my people than the millennials because like some millennials right? are like in their mid thirties and that's like older shit for me. Oh my god, I'm gonna be 29 this year. Please. <laughs> <laughs> it hurts me. <laughs> I like realized that the other day and I like spiraled into a crisis. I was sitting there like, I am going to be 29 this year. That's one year away from 30. I'm going to be once 30 next 30, year. Trust me, once you hit 30, zero fucks are given. You don't care anymore. Uh, that, I, I, that ship sailed when I was like 12. The last I remember was being 22. 
and now I'm like I'm past mid 20s and I'm just like I'm slowly edging towards 30 and I'm just like getting more and more anxious it's like oh fuck I'm <laughs> there's already... nothing to get anxious about you you kids these days <laughs> okay boomer <laughs> no but like low-key I freaking love tiktok like it's I know really I know that people have like a lot of security issues with it which I have opinions on but I I don't know. I I like it. I like the humor. I like the dark humor. Like, well, I'm just gonna go die now. It's, it's very me. It's probably the most funny content I've seen. It it reminds me a lot of Vine. Like Vine was kind of the thing before it got killed by what was it Twitter that blocked Twitter them? killed it. Yeah. But it's not it's as try hard as Vine. I feel like sometimes, like some people do try hard, but other people just like flip on TikTok and they're like, "Yo, like I'm chilling in my pajamas and don't really give a shit about what's going on today," and it's got like a million likes. <laughs> What what yeah. I'm confused about is why are there so many companies lining up for acquisition discussions on the U.S. operations of TikTok? I'm just a little surprised that, I mean, it, it was a thing, but now all of a sudden all these companies are talking about buying it. I know Microsoft was a contender, and I think there's a latest, there's another contender, and I'm sure there's I mean, probably it's others the biggest as well. social media platform in the world right now. Like, really, the most wow. famous people on TikTok have followers in like the like a, a standard famous TikTok person would be followers in the millions or tens of millions. Whereas on YouTube, you're like famous if you have over 100k subscribers. Twitter is like the same. It's like the, just the sheer number of people on that app is insane. Me just making an account, which I commented on one post, and I already have 100 followers. Yeah, it's. I think it's a much more globally adopted, like, I don't know, we think that Instagram and stuff are big, which they are, but I think it's very US driven, whereas TikTok kind of is They also have global. a lot of things that others just don't, like the algorithm on TikTok is insanely good. Like it, it it's yes. like Vine, but it also has an algorithm which personalizes the content to what you like. Like it measures how many times you watch a video, whether you like it, uh, how long you spend watching. And then it uses that data to find out other videos which it thinks you'll like. So everyone's TikTok feed is like highly personalized for them. And like the algorithm is actually really, really good. And I think a lot of companies, like if nothing else, they will just buy it to kill the platform and take the algorithm because it, for like advertising, that is worth a lot of money. Hmm, that's yeah, a good point. That makes a lot of sense then. It's really good. Like, I, yeah, I mean, you don't even really think about it, but you, Every time you open the for you page or whatever, like all the videos that you scroll through are like videos that you have would either be looking for or would want to watch, and they like pepper your the people that you follow in there too, so you're not missing their content. It's pretty legit. But isn't that why they're also kind of in hot water? I guess with the administration is or, or like some security people because of how good their algorithm is and also the amount of data they are collecting. Isn't that what's causing some of the concern that kicked off all these discussions to begin with? It is, but they're not collecting anything that other companies are. Yeah, my my worry is less like. I don't care what the Chinese government has. I'm worried that the US government is going to get the psychological profile of me that TikTok has made and then they're <laughs> going to commit me to therapy. Whereas like at least if China has it, they're just what is what is China going to do? They're not going to like get me sectioned for laughing at people falling down hills for 3 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I watched this really funny one last week. I'll have to find it and send it to you. But it was this cat and they had like timed it to music and like the cat like tried to jump 
and he like jumped into the window and I watched it like <laughs> I watched it like twenty times because you could just hear the thunk as it hit the glass. Oh my god. And the cat was fine, by the way. I love cats. I'm not <laughs> not hating on cats. It was just really funny. The one I saw was uh someone's they were hiking and someone's friend fell off the cliff and they're like rolling down the cliff and it looks really, really bad. And someone's put it to Mr. Blue Sky. And I just, I was dying. I think that's I why just... we feel much more aligned with Gen Z because they take these horrible videos and they put them to music. Like that's they, they have just, they've mastered just living in this shitty reality <laughs> and just enjoying it. Like everything is going to shit right now. If you're like a millennial or Gen Z, like just life sucks. And they're still they're still having fun. Like they're enjoying things. They're just finding ways to make everything fun. And I guess that's much more how I am as a person. Like if something terrible is happening, I'd rather like find a way to make it fun than just sit there and wallow. Yeah. I guess maybe that's why these platforms are blowing up the last few months because people have nothing better to do than it's free therapy. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> like I maybe I not therapy, therapy but at least a vent, an escape for you could see what's therapy going on. though. Like I find at least one TikTok every day that makes me actually laugh out loud. Like, like I actually sit there and laugh <laughs> at it. And I think laughter is therapy. So. Yeah, I agree. Like TikTok is free. I pay with my personal data. Whereas therapy, I have to actually pay with money. And I don't like that. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things. So people are always, they say things are free. And my one of my things is nothing is ever free. So if you're not paying for an app, then you need to understand that they have your data and they are doing stuff with it most likely. And you're rarely going to have a company that has an app that doesn't collect any data from you and is also completely free because at the end of the day, it's all business. And but the thing is like TikTok is really not doing that much with the data. And then when you look at like Facebook and Instagram and what they do with their data, like they fucking sank my country. Like they, they data mined uh, political opinions in order to push through Brexit and they, they are like literally responsible for sinking an entire country. And then it's like TikTok is the problem. Like they're, they're, I don't even know what they're gathering. They're gathering something and that's bad because China. And you're just like, hang on a second. Look at what like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are gathering and doing. And you pick on TikTok because it's Chinese. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's part of the the media. I think it's it's, it's hype, and I I'm sure the other social media companies are using this to maybe I guess stir controversy to potentially devalue whatever deal, so they can pick it up, pick up the algorithm at a discount, as you said. Yeah, it's a standard fire sale. They just because. You saw like the second Trump speaks about banning it, every company is like suddenly opening to yeah, buy it. No, they want to buy it now. All these people are courting them. It's 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 fascinating. Yeah, and it's like to see. TikTok is too valuable for really any of those companies to buy under normal conditions. But when it's facing being banned and they have no choice but to sell, then they're gonna they're gonna sell because it's sell for a low price or die. So it kind of makes sense because like. Under normal conditions, TikTok probably would not sell their operations because they're such a good platform. Or it could backfire and then all these tech companies are fighting over it and it drives up the price. Uh, I mean, it's going to sell for a lot, I imagine. There's actually, there's a pre-IPO, um, like basically some, some stock accounts have a pre-IPO buy-in on TikTok. And like, I'm considering buying that 
because if that if that like stock merges with something like Microsoft, that's going to be a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But also, it could be the sale falls through and it just gets killed, so it's a risk. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just have to to see how that how that pans out. I mean, maybe we'll be surprised by how much it goes for. I mean, I was definitely surprised when WhatsApp was acquired for the amount of money because um, I think they only had like. They had under 30 employees, I think, when they got acquired. So pretty much everyone got like tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars out of the deal. Billions, I believe. I uh, I think the lead guy on WhatsApp is now a multi-billionaire. I think it was something like three billion he got. Good and for it, him. it wasn't Good the company. They didn't, buy, they didn't buy the company. They bought users not using an app other than messenger is what they bought they don't yes. give a shit about whatsapp yes like they've done this before they just twitted it that they bought and killed vine facebook have been known to catch and kill a lot of companies and it's not because they value the company at that it's they value the competition at that it's like we just get rid of the competition at any cost we don't actually really want the company yo think about like all the cars you could get if you're a multi-billionaire though <laughs> <laughs> like... don't get me started like I could build my own racetrack in my backyard. Just like go every morning, hit the track. Let's do this. That's what that's what this guy did. That's that's what this guy out in Nevada did. Um, so I Spring Mountain uh, Motorsport Park. That's literally what this guy did. He was a millionaire, and he's like, you know what? I want my own racetrack. So he created a racetrack and he rents it out. And there was a lot of events, and he's actually looking at expanding this racetrack and he wants it to be larger than the Nürburgring which is insane so that's his vision for for this it's actually a pretty cool track Uh, I've been to it a couple times but yeah if if I were a multi-billionaire I would do something like that as well I mean if it's in Nevada that's pretty like the land cost there is nothing like in the middle of the desert you're you could build something bigger than Nürburgring easy well and you can use it year-round too which is a good I know. I feel like it gets too hot in the summer that the fucking tires would just melt at that point. Uh, <laughs> well, this is this is a country club, so basically you can have like air conditioned garages, and you you can own a condo there. On the so what what I usually do when I go there is I rent one of the condos, and in between my runs, I'll just go back into my air conditioned like unit and just hang out until it's my turn to go out again. But like, what temperature do cars like function at? Because I feel like. When I was driving a Lamborghini in Vegas, we had this issue is it was so damn hot that the car would just overheat and it just wouldn't be functional under like below a certain speed. I'm wondering if like, can you get hot enough where like the car is just completely non-functional, like the tires melt or the, the engine craps out? I wouldn't worry about the tires. I would worry about the engine overheating. Um, and as long as the cooling system's in order, any modern car should not overheat. There are some cooling systems. I know on one of the cars that we had at one point, um, you had to fill the water box with ice between runs. Was it turbo? Yeah, we... <laughs> it had a... Oh, supercharged. No, it was turbo. I don't... It, the turbo was like well bigger than my head. Like it, that was the car that made 1100 horsepower. So like you had... Wait, that's, like... that's not a stock car. So of course it's going to overheat. Yeah, well, yeah, have... no. <laughs> yeah, no. And then actually one of the other cars that we worked on, um, it didn't have a cooling system at all because it just ran drag. So like literally you'd start this car up and like run it for like 15 seconds and then like shut it off. 
it was crazy but like you couldn't street drive it anywhere one it wasn't street legal it was like completely gutted but two yeah like it didn't have a cooling system so if you tried to drive it for longer than like x amount of time it would just like overheat and shut off uh even with cooling systems we were having problem like it it wasn't a brand new car like we rented uh i think it was an aventador and we were driving through death valley and we had to go past a certain speed which was probably above the limit else the car would just break down like it, it just it couldn't deal with the heat at the slower speeds because the vents aren't working. Yeah, that's that's possible, especially an Aventador that is a, a V twelve. Um, yeah, airflow is going to be really important for for cars like that to to, to manage heat. Um, and I'm sure that car has been beat the crap out of. And oh yeah, I'm sure. For sure. <laughs> sure, the thermostats all worn out. The water pumps probably going. I mean, they don't. I. I you can buy you can buy some of these supercars super cheap after they've gone through service as a rental car in Vegas, and I I would be suspect of buying anything. Out of oh that yeah, for sure. Space. I've seen them. It's like you can you can get a fucking like a top end Lamborghini for like less than a hundred k, and you're just like, hang on a second, how <laughs> how how long is this gonna last? <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it, I, yeah. Um, I checked a race at Road Atlanta, which is like one of my favorite tracks ever and um i think it was a stock if it wasn't stock it just had bolt-ons it was a corvette but it wasn't oh man i don't know my corvettes it was like the tear down from like the top tier racing one or whatever so, sure and <laughs> <laughs> i'm terrible with american cars but um i know it didn't have the vented brakes so the brakes actually caught fire after one of the <laughs> like, like we had to like put them out but also like yeah it kept overheating and the owner eventually like after that race he bought the z71 maybe is that zr1 zr1 that's what it is the zr1 <laughs> is the one with the gigantic wing oh the I'm sun in... is uh starting to uh that's, uh, that's a bit bright <laughs> i'm angelic <laughs> i quite I like corvettes but they're they're a little scary to drive on the road because you you touch the gas and the back end is coming out like this is just the way they're built. Well, yeah, I mean that's at least all it's not a Mustang drive. where it's purposely going after human beings on the road. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, much better. Now I don't think cars would be it if I was a billionaire. I was like I feel like my my ideal house is like between one and two million. And then yesterday I saw a video of uh, Zed's mansion in the in the it's some canyon in LA and this is like 15 60 million I'm like fuck like now now 2 million just seems like pathetic what are you gonna do with all that shit like all that space it's just I don't know but it just looks so damn nice I mean yeah I don't know I've always Your been an older house fan yeah I've always been an <laughs> old house fan I'd rather have like a small modest house I really like old houses like craftsman style houses so like I love small houses but small house and then like a ton of cars <laughs> yeah i think for me it has to be a big garage or the ability to have a big garage um i mean i i don't like the idea of too big of a house because i mean why would i need Eating. like six bedrooms i i don't need that i just need like maybe a really tall six car garage and it, that, that'll be nice but I, <laughs> but the Only problem six. is a big house you have the land to build it well i well six for the in the cars where i park them indoors There'll, there'll be okay. driveway space for the other cars. That well, driveway space, and then, like, you need a separate shop with a lift. Yes, that is true. To... That is true. Because you don't want to, like, have to move cars around just to get on the lift. Yeah, no. Mm. 
I, I come from a, an area which is mostly Victorian houses and they're just Ugh, they're huge tunnel long. Them. And if it wasn't for literally everything else, I would just live there. Because those those houses, they're beautiful. You can get some of the 10 bedrooms, uh, 600K. You can easily get like five or six bedrooms for 250, 300K. And they're just so cheap. But the downside is you have to live in the middle of nowhere good internet no clubs no bars no uh, real public transport and it's it's just like if that house was anywhere else that would be my dream house i love i would really like to eventually my dream is to have like a brownstone i love the old brownstones like either boston is like my favorite with the brownstones but new york has good ones too i don't know i like city living but um i i think it'd be really amazing to restore an old one I don't know I really want to restore something I love old houses I love doing like house jobs like I don't know I grew up like helping my dad with that stuff so I just really enjoy like doing painting and electrical stuff and um drywall how and... often do you watch HGTV oh my god you have no idea dude like it's usually <laughs> it's pretty much on like a lot of the time in the background like I, I just enjoy it. House. I think it'd be really fun. And I like older houses because I think it's really cool to preserve some of the original architecture and like the cool features of the house. Like some of the, especially like early 1900s houses and stuff had really amazing like wood carving and architecture and crown molding. Crown molding is a lost art. I'm convinced. But that's actually a thing where I'm from. Uh, we, we have something called listed buildings which means it's of historical significance which is most of the buildings mm -hmm. and you have to you can't change the outside like you have to keep the style you have to keep like the original this that and um so basically like anything between 1800s and 1900s you're probably not going to be able to change the outside so you have to actually restore it and i think it's a bit of a drag but also the the buildings do look fucking nice yeah, I like that old architecture. I'm actually, so where I currently live, it doesn't look like it a lot of the time, but um, I'm in the middle of a historic district. This whole area, um, my building included, was a ton of different factories that did different types of fabrics. So my building did like one type, and then there's another building that did like specifically like dyeing the fabric, and then there's another building that did like wool and stuff like that. And it's this whole complex of old factories that are turned into apartments now. But it's... I can tell just from the background that it was A, an old building, and B, <laughs> some sort of warehouse or factory that was converted. Yeah, I love that they kept, like, the windows, you can open them. They, like, made a couple of them newer, but, like, they're still the original windows. And I love that, like, you can see back here the arch from the floor below. Yeah. You oh, can I don't know. see the way they converted it. Yeah, I there's like just, stuff like, like that. stuff like that. I almost bought a converted warehouse, and it was the most beautiful house you'll ever see. But it was just built in a shitty old warehouse and i just thought that was the coolest thing ever i love that one it looks so unassuming and like i don't know this building actually looks really cool it's still got the smokestack and everything but i love when you especially in urban areas when you find like a building that looks like really shitty and run down you go inside and it's just like the nicest restored warehouse ever and you're like wow that's amazing that's what i like like i, I want to live in one which it just looks ghetto from the outside and you go in and it's like uh the tardis or something can we do, so can we do on the inside <laughs> can we do graffiti on the outside yes i'm there <laughs> <laughs> now i i think i would i would do an old building if i was like home but if i was living in la 
I'm just terrified of old buildings there because there's that earthquake waiting and you just know all of those buildings are going to get shredded. It depends on the building though. Like sometimes older buildings, like when we had that hurricane come through here a while ago, I was like, yo, this building isn't going anywhere. Like it is solid brick. Oh, no, 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 it no, survived no. so buildings, many hurricanes already. Old buildings yeah. are great in hurricanes because we, we get like constant like 60 to 19 mile per hour winds in the mm -hmm. winter where I used to live. And those big ass heavy Victorian brick buildings have walls that are about this thick and um they they're not coming down in a hurricane but the downside is big thick walls especially when they're made of bricks in an earthquake they, they just shatter like they just crack apart and the entire building just falls apart and there's a lot and of like, material to fall on you yeah so those buildings are great in a hurricane but in an earthquake you do not want to be anywhere near something <laughs> like that good to know earthquakes are dumb Ooh. I decided that's my decree. <laughs> oh my god, I have to show you since this is sitting here. I'm just like ADD as hell today, but you'll find this entertaining. So I'm taking this class right now and I have this binder, right? It's got a piece of pizza on it. Oh my god. <laughs> that's right. I, I feel get like a lot of on has ruined me and whenever I see pizza I just get <laughs> irrationally angry. I love pizza. I do as well, but just QAnon has ruined it for me. Okay, so this is a controversial subject that comes up on Twitter a lot. Pineapple on pizza or no? Oh, I actually like it. Like, wow, we call dude. it Hawaiian back home. Um, it's not my favorite pizza. It's probably one of my least favorites. But it is better than most other foods. Like, there's like, you have normal food and then you have pizza. And pizza is like, you just crave that shit. So it's better yeah. than the healthy food I'd normally eat, but it's not the best pizza. It's like one of the worst. Yeah, I feel that. I mean, yeah, it's not usually my first choice of pizza, but I don't mind it. My first would be barbecue chicken. That's my barbecue chicken's good. There's a place near me that makes buffalo chicken pizza, and holy crap, it's so good. It's got like fresh tomatoes on it, and then like buffalo chicken and uh, blue cheese crumbles. Hmm. We have a place that does that, and it is amazing. But it's like it's a little too spicy. Yeah, mine is too. And like when you eat an entire pizza and it's spicy, like you're not having a good time the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my favorite kind of pizza isn't really pizza at all. Uh, it's it's something in Germany called Flammkuchen, which means um, uh, like fire cake or fire cookie. Um, it's basically it's like pizza dough, but it's need super thin, it's like paper thin. Then they put toppings on it, usually like onions and, and bacon and, and cheese or cream or whatever. And then they put it in a super hot oven, like a, a wood fired oven or a brick oven or something really hot. And it's basically only in there for maybe 60 seconds and it's done. And then you take it out because it's so thin, it cooks almost instantaneously. And it's nice and crispy and it's thin, so it's not super heavy. That's my favorite form of pizza. I like New York pizza. Like the New England pizza has been treating me well because I grew up with Midwest pizza, which is a travesty. Do not ever eat pizza in the Midwest. Sorry, <laughs> but I don't know. Like, it's just not good. It's like ketchup on bread. And you're like, what the fuck? What is this? But then like New York is really good. And you can like fold the slice and stuff like that. And then I don't know. Chicago pizza has got its place. It's not my favorite, but. Yeah, Chicago pizza. I, I, I like I feel it like it's overrated. I, I like it, but I feel like I can't eat a lot of it because one slice is the equivalent of like three slices of New York pizza. It's just a lot. It's like it's like eating tomato soup out of a giant bread bowl. Yeah, it's like it's more like a, a fucking cake than anything. Yeah, it's like a cake. Yeah, it's like I like it, but it's just too much. 
I would rather cake. have like a thin pizza where I can eat the entire pizza and feel slightly less guilty because it's only 2,000 calories as opposed to like 30,000. That's why you would like flamkuchen because it's so thin. You look at it you're like, oh my God, it's gigantic. But it, because it's so thin, you can eat the whole thing and not feel guilty. <laughs> I don't think I, I tried uh, pizza in the Midwest, but there was one thing I had. It was deep fried cheese. Oh, the cheese, cheese curds. The cheese curds. With with cheese with grated cheese on top. Was that when you were in Wisconsin? And a dip, yeah, and a dipping <laughs> sauce of that. cheese. That was so good. Oh, and I'm like, there's eight different cheese here. <laughs> Wisconsin is the cheese capital. I don't know what you're expecting. But, <laughs> yeah, but I didn't expect to, there to be just so many layers of cheese in a single meal. Like, I've, I've had cheese curds before, but I've never had them coated with cheese and grated cheese on top in cheese sauce. we ate all the cheese curds and then we ordered more and then you were like, I can't eat anymore. I'm like, to go please <laughs> so you can have a late night snack. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I think Tara bought me some to my hotel room at one point and I, I ate them for, no joke, like three days, like every meal. <laughs> They're really like kind of addictively good. I mean, it's like a bite-sized mozzarella stick, right? So you're like, yeah, yeah that, you're right. That's why I like them because mozzarella sticks is like my favorite thing so good i was actually thinking about this the other day so like i'm currently so i do intermittent fasting um because i'm currently on like a cut cycle because i lift a lot and stuff like that but um so i eat i usually fast for like 20 to 24 hours before i eat a meal wow and then <laughs> so i die after like <laughs> i can make it i found that i can me sleeping resets my hunger Mm -hmm. So I can do a, a, I think, 16 or 18 hour fast if I don't eat for a couple hours before I go to bed and don't eat for a couple after. But if I try and do any more than like five in one block, I just feel miserable. So usually Mondays I do 24 hours. So from 8 p.m. Sunday to 8 p.m. Monday, I don't eat. Um, I, just, I could not do that. I would die. Just black coffee maybe... and water. And then the rest of the week I do 22 <laughs> and 18 alternating. So like Tuesday I'll do a 22 hours. So I'll eat between the hours of like six and eight. And then like Wednesday I'll do 18. So I can eat between like four and eight or I don't know, maybe two and eight. I don't know. But I could only um, do that on Adderall. That was, that'd be the only time. And that would just ruin me. <laughs> but, it's, but it's good because it kind of allows me flexibility. Like I, it's easier to plan your meals. And like my one meal a day is usually like eight, 900 calories. And then like, I can have like a protein shake or something on top of that. And I come out to like 1500, which is so low for someone that's my height and stuff like that. So it ends up being a good thing. But I found the, like, I, I can't lose weight by eating healthy. Like that just <laughs> doesn't work for me. But the fasting, like there's so few hours to eat the food that you just can't eat enough food to gain weight. It's like yep. in four hours, I cannot eat 2,000 calories. Like my my base meto uh, metabolic rate will burn 2,000 calories a day. So I yep. need at least 2,000 calories. And trying to eat 2,000 calories in like two to four hours is fucking hard. So that yeah. is the only thing that worked for me. That's why I like it too. It kind of helps cheese me curds. stay more... That's what you need to eat, more cheese curds. <laughs> Well, it helps me stay more rigid. Like I can say, okay, like I can eat in these two hours and then I can kind of be flexible with whatever. Like if I want sushi, I just get sushi during those like two hours, you know? Yeah, you can, you can like, eat whatever. It just does not matter. Like, and that's kind of why I like it. Cause I don't, I don't know. Like I, I try to eat healthy anyway for the most part, but like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I usually just eat whatever, just still on the fasting regimen. So like tonight I'm probably going to have pizza cause I haven't eaten since yesterday. So yeah, I try to go, uh, 
like my first meal out of the fast is something healthy it would be like a greek yogurt with some toppings like some fruit and then my second meal or my last meal of the day it is just whatever and i've not had any issues like even cheeseburger and fries but do you find so like a lot of people are like why do you do that and then like some people even go so far as to say it's like an eating disorder which i don't agree with because i'm i don't like guilt myself about anything i just i enjoy the structure right and um i find that i actually feel like a little bit like more mentally clear and like actually have more energy during my fast period so i i that's the main reason i do it like partially to lose weight but partially because it actually makes you feel better and i read i i'm sure it's like you know how anti-vaxxers have their science which like it makes sense to them but it's complete mm -hmm. fucking bullshit i feel like maybe that might be this but it did make sense to me and it was something to do with like due to evolution like when humans would hunt they would have like they would catch one thing and that would have to last them for like until their next hunt so um uh the food when you eat it it would like make you kind of sleepy and you know the normal food thing but then when it wears off you need the energy to go and hunt again so it was something to do with um the way your uh like your metabolism works is when it gets to the stage where you actually need food again it gives you an energy boost which allows you to get the next meal and then reset the system and like that could be bullshit but like that made sense to me like the idea that you are biologically coded so when you get hungry you become like clearer and more energy because you need to go and get food and if you just became like weak and sleepy when you were hungry then you would just die yeah and i think the there's a couple of other like benefits that have been more well tested too i mean like the fact that you're only spiking your blood sugar like once a day is a big part of it um a lot of people i mean it helps keep your like so I actually have like this genetic, so like I did, I don't know, I did 23andMe, but then I just downloaded my genetic raw data and did a bunch of fun stuff with it. So, um, Enjoy being in the FBI database. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I got in the original way without doing a DNA test. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably, I was probably in there from something else anyway. So, um, but yeah, so I was able to like, there were a couple different sites that I played with and stuff like that, but I have like this weird gene thing that like, it, First of all, I have one that makes me process caffeine a lot faster than most people, which is why I drink like a thousand milligrams of caffeine I have a day. That as well. But uh, the other was like I tend to have a lower, um, or I tend to have like I don't remember what how they worded it, but my body runs more efficiently um, when it has low insulin. So like when I haven't eaten in a while and it's just chilling, like yeah, so. I think nutrition yeah. is one of those things where there is no one size fits all. Mm -mm. And because it's so dependent on your genetics. And I think anyone who is trying to pitch a diet or regimen or whatever and say, hey, this is the thing to do, that's a load of shit because yeah. everyone's metabolism is different. You actually have to measure your metabolism in a scientific way to understand how your body is burning calories when and, and, and et cetera. And then your nutrition needs to be adjusted and adapted to that. So whenever there is some type of diet or regimen and they say, hey, this is what you have to do, I'm always suspect of it because it doesn't give the disclaimer that, hey, you have to experiment and fine tune it for yourself and your body and, and the situation that you're in. And a lot of them are straight up dangerous. Like um, keto is, that can get pretty bad. Um, because obviously carbs are the main source of uh, 
of uh is it glucose i don't remember my biology courses but um like <laughs> it's brain you food. can yeah you can you can function on just like protein and fat but you're gonna start to get like mentally slower like physically less strong and like i did uh like a keto diet for a few months and by the end of it i was just like i was weak as shit mentally like a uh, fucking dumpster fire so I, then I tried intermittent fasting and I found it was the opposite. While I, I can't work out on the fast, like I have to have a, I have to have a meal before I go work out. Um, other than that, like mentally, I'm, I have a very clear head. Uh, I don't feel like an, like an anxious mess. And that was the one that worked for me. And I, I wasn't like just sticking to diets that like some Instagram influencer pitched me. <laughs> I would use those as ideas and I'd try them. And then I would see in the end, like what actually I thought was best. Yeah, I was keto for like eight months a couple years ago. And I lost like 40 pounds in like eight months. It was crazy. Well, I lost a ton but, of weight, but yeah. I also lost all of my mental health. But I felt like anytime I would eat anything with any amount of carbs, I would feel really foggy. And like, yeah, it would you, just screw you. You get the keto flu and like all that stuff. So like, I don't know. And I was trying to lift at that point and my lips were not progressing and I couldn't. No, you out. can't, you can't no. work out with it. It's... So I don't know. I just, I kind of just did macro counting for a while, which was fine and stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. The thing with intermittent fasting is it's really helped me learn how to like, listen to like what I need more, I guess. Like I usually lift fasted, but there are some days where I'm just like, yeah, I, I can't do that. And I know like I need to break a fast neat because I don't feel good. So it's really just kind of trained me to, um, I guess intuitively like do what I need. But like Tran said, I would not recommend it to everyone. I know there's actually a lot of women who can't do it because if you're, uh, it can really mess with your hormones like that you produce as a woman. I don't remember which specific hormones, but um, yeah, it, it doesn't work for a lot of people. It backfires. I know it also causes some people to binge eat too, because you're restricting so much that when you do have that window, you just kind of let loose. So there's definitely not a one size fits all. Yeah, I I, I can't do the binge eat. It just off for me. Yeah, I just feel but like I shit did... after I binge yeah. eat, and because yeah. sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm like, oh my god, I love this food. I'm just gonna eat this whole damn steak. <laughs> it's it's not. Sometimes I order too afterwards. much sushi. I ordered too much sushi and then I'm like, fuck. But sushi, you, you can't it. get fat on it. So low calories. Like, I have what? eaten just There's nothing. So much carbs but sushi. rice. I, I don't know. My yeah. approach is making sure that I have everything in moderation, a little bit of everything. You know the, the big sushi thing we, that we, we get at Sugarfish? That's 600 calories. That's it. Really? That's, that's less it? than a burger and fries. Yeah. Well, don't forget, we, we, we usually get a lot of a couple extra things. I, I know we always get the don't yeah, think that's just not... eat menu, but we always add on things after that. So you're, not, you're not pushing a thousand calories, which is my point. It's like sushi is a lot lower calorie than you think it is. Like you can fill up on sushi. It's expensive as shit, but you can fill up on sushi and it's going to be a lot less worse than if you, they filled up on like fries or chips or whatever. And I don't know, but uh, yeah, speaking of like uh, keto, one thing I did notice is I was working out while keto and obviously you have no carbs, so you have fuck all energy and I'm pushing myself to my limits every single time. And then I eat carbs before one of my workouts and I'm like, I'm going so fucking fast. And it's like, I'm going too fast. Like I'm going to hit someone <laughs> and I'm, I'm like realizing that I'm going way too fast to even be on this cycle path because I'm, I'm just buzzing past people. And I'm like, holy shit, like I do, I should not be on keto. Like this is, this is ruining me. 
the energy that you get from carbs is unreal. Like, so it's insane. I usually lift fasted, but if I'm like testing, if I'm trying to lift like a heavier weight than I normally do or doing like a working up to a max weight or something, I'll usually eat carbs the day before and then maybe like the yeah, morning carbo up. load. And it yeah, helps to do that so much swimming. with some of the really, really heavy lifts. It's just like you have that energy to power through it. Whereas like when I do lift fasted, it took a while to get used to. And sometimes I still am like, holy shit, I'm lightheaded. I'm dehydrated. Like I just need to eat. Like I'll drink a protein shake and eat a protein bar before I go just to make sure that I don't like pass yeah. out at the gym. So well, when I, I used to compete at swimming is um, I would eat an entire family bucket of KFC before, oh before the competition. <laughs> and like, it seems insane now, but like that would give you just perfect amount of energy to do the entire thing. Well, swimming burns insane calories. Like Michael Phelps said yeah. he eats like 14,000 calories a day or something, doesn't he? Yeah, like... and you can you can only get that from a KFC family bucket. And it's the, <laughs> it's the best tasting way to eat that many calories. <laughs> Uh, one thing, one thing I noticed uh, when I was still in California, when when I did work out a lot, was making sure you got enough electrolytes. That was important because in California, it's technically a desert, and I just felt like I was losing so much electrolytes. Just I was just drying up like a prune all the time, and I always need not just just water wasn't enough. I needed to add uh, electrolytes to it. Um, I guess I guess also when when I eat food, I don't like a lot of salt in my food either. So maybe that's a contributing factor where I don't have enough salt in my body. I, I always have you to also need potassium. Yeah. And I don't eat that many bananas. So <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I worked out yesterday, which it's the heat wave right now. So it's, it's 30, 31, 32, or, um, I guess 85 in freedoms or maybe even 90, I think. And when I got back, I was, I was a mess because I'd swear all the sodium out of my body. And uh, the trick I found is coconut water. It contains both sodium and potassium oh, in yes. like the perfect ratio. And it's healthy as shit. It's like 30 calories for, uh, for like an eight ounce glass. They're like, now that's my workout secret is just fuck loads of coconut water. Oh, that, that's I what think... I did as well in California. I, you know, after, um, if I get bored with sparkling water with electrolytes added to it, I'll just have coconut water or I'll have a coconut water afterwards in addition to the water uh, yeah. with electrolytes. And the sports industry like tries to convince you that you need like uh, whatever you call it here, like Gatorade or Powerade yes. or some sports drink. And all it is is like minimal amounts of electrolytes. And a ton and a of, sugar. Ton of sugar. sugar. Yeah, no, that's what I was just, <laughs> just going to talk about. Like, they, they market it like it's so healthy. And, like, yeah, it's good for, like, if you're playing a really intense sport. Like, it was originally made for football players. And they're, like, out running. They need the sugar. And they need the electrolytes. But your average person does not need that much sugar when they're replenishing their electrolytes. And, but it tastes so um, good. It does. <laughs> but you know what? I'm so happy. Gatorade finally has Gatorade Zero. And I love it because it tastes the exact same. But it doesn't have any sugar in it. And I'm so happy about it. But I use liquid IV sometimes if I'm like really in a bad way. I don't know if you've tried that, but it's like heaven in a packet. It's like lemonade flavored and you just like, oh, like those it. little gel packets for like marathon. No, it's a um, it's powder and you just mix it into water and mm. it makes a drink. But like it's really good. And then I have like electrolyte drops that I just throw into whatever drink sometimes too. But if I'm like super hungover or something, Pedialyte. Yes, Pedialyte. Pedialyte is for that's great if you get too fucked up the night before. It works for alcohol. It works for other things. We bought uh, so best, much. The best for Con. hangovers the next morning, a nice bowl of ramen. Like, all dude, the I can't salt even and... think of food when I'm hungover. Like, I look at food and I just you want need to eat. yeah. 
Well, the but then soup- eventually you need like greasy food. <laughs> well, ramen. The nice thing is with ramen, if really good ramen also is greasy and has fats and oils in it. I, I, I think true. ramen is like the perfect hangover food. It just has like a little bit of everything. And then also when we just a soft boiled egg in it because egg has a protein that helps with the hangover as well. So when I get hungover next, you're going to bring me ramen. Okay, thanks. Yes, of course. <laughs> but, How about um, I cook some homemade ramen? Perfect. I've never had it homemade, so. So I, I'm checking the Twitter stream right now uh, while, while we're chatting, and someone made a comment that they watched one of our episodes the other day and complained that we need to step up our drinking game and, and is offering to send us alcohol as well. So <laughs> Wait, are they that... are? Yeah. I mean, apparently. Send me whatever. I'll make a drink. The last time I took a drink from someone, uh, I, I got myself roofied, so I'm I'm not too keen on that one. But um, are they saying we need to up our drinking game in terms of the quality or quantity of alcohol? Probably, Probably both. both. So, yeah. <laughs> I looked it up and I drink an entire bottle of wine every podcast and I looked it up and for normal people, that is like <laughs> asked out on the floor drunk. So I think I'm doing pretty well. Well, I think for quality, <laughs> I mean, I, I usually have pretty nice whiskey. If you guys remember, I had like a um, mm. Hibiki 21, uh, Kuroyoshi, I think 12. Um, so I've had a number of good whiskeys, but I don't drink that much. I, I, I just can't drink i mean i don't have the asian glow fortunately but i I just can't drink that much anymore these days so i have a super i don't know if you guys saw the uh picture of my bar cart that i put together that i posted but like i'm obsessed with it because like i have this corner of my living room that i'm not using because i don't use a dining room area because i don't have a dining room because i'm a millennial and (laughs) it's true true. right (laughs) and so i put together a bar cart because i wanted to start getting better at like building like making actual cocktails and like learning some of the different ones and stuff. So um, she just over some recommendations. And next episode, I will make a legit cocktail, whatever people recommend the most. And... I, I like this plan. Like I, I won't accept alcohol from people because I've had just too many bad experiences. But if people have like drink recipes, yeah. I'd like to make some. And I'm like, I'm good with the weird, like some of the weird stuff. Um, like, I mean... Yeah, if, if it takes fresh herbs and stuff, I'll go shopping. And I'll show you my bar cart next episode. But like right now, there's a bunch of cardboard boxes over there. So Yeah, I only have two bottles of whiskey here. And I don't know how much I want to... There's no way I'm going to replicate my liquor collection here in Germany. It, it, I, I would go... I would go I'd be poor. I, I'd be so poor. <laughs> <laughs> Tech, you've seen my Oh, yeah, collection. it's impressive. Like, <laughs> I always feel so out of place because like, they're all like sipping this... like incredibly expensive fancy whiskey and me i just drink to get drunk like i, I will like <laughs> fucking just do shots of the shit <laughs> so i love whiskey but one of my favorite other drinks that i rarely have is um absinthe so once fall starts Ooh, hitting yes. more that's my that's my like september october november drink but i have like the i have the sugar cubes i have the spoons i have the glasses for it so we will be doing an absinthe drip and that'll be i i actually like it and people are surprised so good. Like, it tastes really good. Yeah, it's very herbally. And I don't actually usually like like the anise taste. Like I don't usually like the black licorice kind of taste. But um, I love licorice drinks. Yeah, no, I love that. And then, um, yeah, I like that it makes your tongue tongue go numb too. It's kind of fun. Well, that's because yeah. the alcohol content in absinthe is so high. Well, the um, wormwood has an anesthetic property too. Yeah, I think. it's the wormwood. I think because like Everclear doesn't do that. Like it just 
it burns your mouth, but it doesn't make it go numb. Yeah, yeah, I think the well, it's probably the alcohol content mixed with the warm wine. But yeah, I think mm. if it has, so there's some absinthe that doesn't have actual wormwood in it, and there's some that does. Just like it has a really interesting history if you start reading about it. But um, I bought it. There's a new an bottle. absinthe tour in Switzerland because a lot of major distilleries and first was in Switzerland, and you can actually go on a tour to visit all the distilleries. So eventually, I'll, I'll do that while I'm here. No, you're waiting for us to come visit, and then we're <laughs> yeah. gonna go. Because I you, need to be there. You're going to pay for my flights so that I can come get drunk with you. I'll pay Thanks. for my flight. <laughs> Thank you. I'll pay for my... You know, flights are super cheap right now. I was looking... Really? Flights <laughs> I was looking were super yeah, expensive I just... when I came here. They were, like, I was looking way ahead. Well, I was looking I way ahead. You, you came the one week, like the first week that Americans were allowed to leave the country. That's true, so yes. Americans were like, fuck you, bye. <laughs> no, I was looking way ahead because there was... I think I was going to go to Australia at some point and like next march or something they're like it's like 900 something for a round trip ticket and i'm like damn you, dude, you can come here in in november time frame it'll just start to get a little chill chilly we can do a trip down to switzerland and, and go on an absinthe tour the two of you and i have a nice comfy big couch here for, for, for you guys if i could on. leave the country right now i would i would go to europe like just traveling on a plane that's far less risky than just being in america during COVID. especially california probably yeah <laughs> no i want to go back to europe so bad um i haven't i've only been there once so i want to see more i don't want to go home and pick up my server <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of uh you know viewer engagement uh and and questions we, we seem to get a lot of questions around career advice and getting into infosec for some reason that is a recurring question so it seems like it's a very hot topic and we we somehow end up talking about it almost every episode as well um so maybe i'll kind of go through a couple of the random questions that have popped up and if it's relevant feel free to, to pipe in but one this is probably most relevant to you tech around reverse engineering is how did you get started reverse engineering and what would you recommend people who are interested in it how do they get into it i've uh I think my question answers all of the questions, not just reverse engineering, because I feel like there is no specific way to get into a specific topic. It is the same for every topic. And the way in which I learn is I'll pick something I want to do. So they like, say I want to learn uh, red teaming or I want to learn reverse engineering. I Google about red teaming or I Google about reverse engineering and I find like a write-up by someone about a job they did or I'll Google, say, reversing techniques, and then I'll go to an article about reversing techniques. And let's assume I'm brand new to this. I understand absolutely nothing about the area. I'm going to read that article, and it's going to just sound like gibberish. Like, I'm not going to understand half of it. So what I'll do is I'll pick out a word that sounds interesting. I'll Google what that word means, and then I'll learn about that thing. And then I'll just slowly build up, like, my knowledge of words. Because, like, while you're learning words, you're not you're not getting sidetracked. You are learning important skills for InfoSec. Like you need to know the terminology. So I'm learning the terminology. Then I'm learning about the terminology, like about the things that word describes. And I'm slowly building up my knowledge tree until the point where I actually understand the article I'm trying to read, at which point I can then start building up my knowledge tree to actually doing the thing in the article. And I, I think that just works for anything. Like I've started reading a lot of medical journals and like medic like in the medical field they use a ton of insanely big words that just like you read a medical journal it's just completely another language to average human 
and I'll just I'll pick a word. I'll go look up that word. I'll maybe get sidetracked and find some other related things. And I'll just slowly build up my database of knowledge. And then eventually I will understand the full paper. And I, I just think that works for any industry. And you can you can find books and you can find tutorials and walkthroughs that will help you get some of the way. But ultimately, the most important thing is being able to just build up like your tree of knowledge on your own. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, Gabs, I mean, how did you learn new topics? I mean, is, did you go through a similar systematic approach when you kind of gone it came into InfoSec? Yeah, I mean, it for me, it was kind of like the sponge approach where like just every manner of trying to learn I did. So like I would listen to podcasts and I would watch YouTube videos and I would read articles and read books. I'm a big book learner. Like I love books. So I actually learn the best from like reading books and taking notes. So I've done that like <laughs> with random information security books. But like Marcus said, just trying to learn the language is a big part of it. Like sometimes I still come across terms that I don't really know because I don't come from a tech background. So I end up looking it up, even if it's like something pretty basic, so I can get a better understanding of it and like read all about it. And then finally, by the end, I'm like, oh, okay, like I understand what this is. I see where it fits into the whole process. So I think that's really important. And you know, coming it was kind of the same approach when i worked in like pharma genetic stuff um like margaret said there's a lot of really big words in the medical field and i went from being in college to suddenly being handed these 100 page pharmaceutical reports where they went into every study that these um people had done with the drugs and they went into the side effects that each person had and like all of the scientific data behind everything and you had to be able to understand the data analysis and understand the terminology and um what medically was going on with these people you know i got autopsy reports a lot of the time where i had to like those are crazy to read if you haven't read one of those because they're just so technical and they use words that you don't see anywhere else and you're just like okay um i didn't know that was a thing so because it touches all the body systems so yeah, it's really like I it was really tedious at first. I would literally look up every word I didn't know and that took forever. But eventually you start seeing repeat words and you start remembering what they mean and you can start to string together some of the main topics. It's like learning a language basically. Mm -hmm. And it may seem like you're not you're not learning cuz like there's learning words and then there's learning the thing you want to do. But one thing I found out is like I'm an ex malware developer. I used to write the malware which the reverse engineer's reverse engineer and then I came into reverse engineering and I would see terms and I was like, I have no idea what this term is. And then someone would explain it to me and I was like, oh, that's that thing I did. We didn't, we had a different name for it. And you realize the terminology is as important as the skills. Like if you are the best damn reverse engineer in the world and you don't know any of the terminology that they use in the industry, you're just going to seem like an idiot. Like it's, it, the skills matter but also being able to uh, like portray and explain those skills to someone in a way they can understand is what's really important. So like, I would definitely like not get discouraged if you find yourself just learning words after words after words instead of learning actual reverse engineering because both of those things are equally useful. I think what's also useful is having an objective in mind while you're going through this to help motivate you. Um, when, when I learn tech, even before security, my motivation was I, I think I, I, I'm trying to remember if I shared this story or not, but I wanted to start a business, an online business, and I had to learn how to set up my own infrastructure. I didn't know anything about Unix or Linux. 
but my objective was I wanted to host a website out of my parents' living room. So I had to figure out how to install BSD, install Apache, configure it, load all the PHP stuff so that way the, the code would work. It was, I, but I had an objective and that's what motivated me. And I, 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 would, I would be up for 20 hours straight just figuring things out um, because I was motivated to do it. So uh, I think part of learning is also having that motivation and that drive and that objective at the end of, at the, end of the tunnel. I think motivation's big, but I think curiosity is also a really big part. Um, and I, I think it's overlooked sometimes. You need to be, the thing that'll set you apart in a lot of instances is you being the person that will say, okay, but what if we take this a step further? Or what if we look at this? I mean, so much of it, I, I went to an interview once for a blue team position and I remember them telling me, we want that person who is going to see the loose string and keep pulling it until they find what's at the end because they were like some people will look at it and be like oh i'm not opening that can of worms and like walk past it or just not be curious about it and they were like we want those curious people that want answers even if it turns into a shit show so i think that's a really big part of it too but in order to have that curiosity you need to find an area that you're passionate about and that you're curious about so that's actually how i got into the business side of security and the non-tech stuff was was curiosity um, our CISO at, uh, at one of the companies I worked at, he, what he likes to do is he likes to bring in, um, startups, security startup companies for them to pitch their products to the team. And we have an opportunity to see what's going, <laughs> we have an opportunity to see kind of what's going on, um, ask some questions and maybe identify a cool emerging tech that no one else is using that we can kind of jump in there first. Um, and, I asked a lot of questions during that session. And I remember the CISO even comments, oh, we obviously have a, an inquisitive mind over here. And he actually <laughs> remembered that. Um, and over time, as I started to do work on bigger and bigger projects, my name started to get brought up even more and more. And he remembered that I was a very curious person who was trying to solve problems and, and pull those loose threads, as you said. And he asked if I want to work directly for him doing non-technical stuff. And that was kind of the start of how I learned all the business and management side of security. I think um, one of the most important things I found was you should have like an objective that you're interested and curious about, but also you shouldn't fixate on that objective. Because ultimately like what made my career is like my objective was writing malware. And what made my career was like, I would get sidetracked and I would learn this and that. And then all of those skills put together made me a very rounded reverse engineer. And I've also had like, I've had cases where I've been stuck on something and I've been like banging my head against it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I, I get sidetracked and I feel bad because I'm not focusing on the, on my like primary goal. And then something I like something clicks while I'm getting sidetracked or I learn some new things that give me a different perspective. And then I come back to the thing I was stuck on and then like suddenly I, I understand how to fix it. And it's like important to understand that it's it's good to have a goal, but if you get sidetracked and you learn some stuff along the way, then that's that's good. I think the flexibility goes a long way too. You need to, especially when you're looking for your role in InfoSec and stuff like that. Um, I think a lot of people kind of have, they're so fixated on that end goal that they're not willing to consider anything but that. And I think that is a lot of the problem. You need to realize yeah. that your first job offer is probably not going to be your dream job. 
and um, but you need to look at it and say, okay, is this skill going to help me? Um, you know, is the experience that I'm going to gain from this going to help me? And it reminds me, so like I, one of my favorite, like, tech, like not tech, but like, I guess like business books is it's kind of controversial because people either love or hate her, but it's by Sheryl Sandberg and um, she's the CEO of Facebook. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's a really good book. It's called Lean In, but the one quote that always stuck with me was when she described your career as a jungle gym and not a ladder. She's like, you're not always going to be climbing up. Sometimes you have to climb over to get up further. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people need to keep in mind. You're not always going to be on that straight trajectory. You need to be strategic about it and think about what skills are going to help you get to where you want to be. This is a great segue for another question as well uh, that was asked of us is, what is the best place to work to get into security? And I think it's, to your point, it's not about, uh, you know, your dream job. But to me, it's the place where you have the greatest opportunity to learn and do different things, including things you might not think you like, because you're going to learn a lot through those experiences. And you have to pick an organization where you have those opportunities. And it has that culture where you're encouraged to do different things. You're encouraged to think outside of just what your box and you know your role is to do more and learn. It's going to mean you're going to put in more hours. You're going to put in more effort. But to have that opportunity to do things outside of what your job description is, that's how you learn the most. And also something that gives you the free time to expand the knowledge to work towards your actual dream job. Like you you don't want to kill yourself trying to move up in this career if that's not your dream job. You want to have something that you can learn. It's a good job. You spend a, a decent amount of time working your job, but also you want to have free time learn the other skills you want to get to where you want to be i think one of the really important things too is it's not about where you work in terms of industry or role necessarily but it's important to find a company that wants you to grow um you know there are some companies out there that i that i mean there's some jobs i've had where if you asked a question that wasn't 100 relevant to your job or you tried to pull that string they were like that's not your job don't worry about it and you don't want that environment like my current company is amazing because you say, hey, what happened? What would happen if we did this? Or like, I have this idea for this process. And they're like, all right, do it. Who do you need to do it? What do you need to do it? What resources do you need? Let's let's explore it. And um, I mean, from day one, they were like, okay, like, let's start thinking about how we can progress your career. And that is huge to have a company that really fosters that and is going to let you ask questions and be curious about things other than the things that you're immediately working on is really, really important in terms of growth. I think that's uh, what I found to be most helpful in my career is I work for a company that's very, very flexible. They don't have set hours. They don't have like, you just pay the salary. You don't have to work any specific amount of time. You don't have to work on any specific project. Like as long as there is an angle which uh, forwards the company's goal, you're allowed to work on whatever. So I've had times when I've been like, Hey, I wanna I wanna look at this malware. It's not something we would typically track, but maybe I can find some interesting bits with it. And then I'll find some interesting bits and there'll be an angle where like, hey, we could make money off of this. And then they'll give me a team and they'll be like, hey, develop this into a product. And like suddenly we've gone from this company that has a very like central goal to like, hey, now we have two products and now we have three and four. 
and then you're just constantly learning new fields as like the company just builds its way out which i found to be very helpful yeah and i think that's also on the, on the inverse the, a good way of looking for good candidates when you're hiring as well is if there's someone who is overly obsessed by defining what their role is and creating that box so they know what they need to do that's not the type of person you want to hire. You no. want someone who no. wants to push the limit. You want the person who's thinking about their external contribution or what else can they do to further the mission or the company or their curiosity even. Uh, because as a manager, your job is to align what someone's passion and curiosity is with what the company needs. And when those things are aligned, magical things happen. Business objectives get met. People's career aspirations and curiosities get met. It's it's, it's a wonderful thing. So um, it works on the other side too, as, as an employer and not just an employee. When I joined, like I just did work for them at first as a contractor, then I got brought on full time. And at first I was like, Hey, what's my job title going to be? And then I kind of forgot about it. And then he circles back several years later, like this was a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, it's time for you to, it's time that we give you a job title. Like we need something to like introduce you to people as it's like, uh, I don't really care. Like, uh, does it matter what my job title is? Do I need a job title? Like I'm just the guy who does things. And I feel like that's how everyone should be. You shouldn't see yourself as this job title where you have to box yourself into this like specific role. You should be just thinking like, what can I do to make the thing better? Like what can I do to improve the company's uh, product or their platform or just my job for myself? I think your job title should not define you at all. Like. I don't know. When people ask what I do, I have so many ways to answer that question that Same. I don't even <laughs> yeah. think. I'm I have just like, like three well, or four like, jobs right now. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, well, I'm an engineer, but I also do like this. And like, I don't know. It's I don't fit into a box, which is a good thing in my opinion. So yeah. Usually I, I generally, I'm just like, I think about it for a few seconds and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what it is I do. I mean, I, I, I have to try to describe what I do because, uh, I mean, when I interview people or when I, when I talk to other people, I need to be able to at least describe how, you know, why they should talk to me. So I at least come up with kind of a script, but it's usually something along the lines of, yeah, I have a couple jobs, but this is the relevant one for today's conversation. Yeah. And it really depends on who I'm talking to, too, because like I still do consulting stuff or just like talk to people um you know in the genetic side of things and some of the studies that we work on and everything and obviously in those conversations especially when I'm talking to like doctors and stuff they literally could not care less about information <laughs> security and what I do like if I tell them what I do they're like why are you here so <laughs> like, you kind of have to like play up your what your strengths are um that are relevant to the conversation. And, and that's a big part of interviewing too, especially when you don't have a lot of experience in a field, you need to be able to sell yourself to the company. Say, hey, like I don't have experience on paper, but you know, I've been working on this. Like part of the way that I got started in the field was I told the hiring managers like, hey, I, I know I don't really have any tech experience on paper, but in all my free time, I've been learning these things. I'm planning on taking Is she connect? Yeah, I think we lost her. Her, her internet died. <laughs> so something else in the news recently, uh, Drovorub, uh, which I guess it's some type of uh, Russian Linux 
hacking toolkit that the NSA and FBI have sent out some advisories on. Uh, based on what I was reading, it pretty much it's a whole toolkit where there's, a, there's a, a kernel rootkit, there's a command and control, there's a bunch of loaders as well for the people to load whatever, I guess, code they want. Uh, but what, what, what wasn't really clear was what type of organizations were they going after? It was really just an advisory that the FBI and the NSA put out there to give organizations a heads up on what the indicators and what they should look like. I mean, essentially, the, the solution is to patch to the latest version of the Linux kernel. Um, I don't know if you guys have any have had a chance to, to look at that yet or what your thoughts on on this advisory has been. Yeah, so the advisory seems um seems a little uh lacking on like what the purpose of this is, like what they're targeting, what like it, what their goal is. And my only thought is Linux devices in networks tend to be very set and forget. Like you're looking at what's going on in your server most days. You're looking at what's going on on your desktop machine, but like the a lot of firewalls run Linux, a lot of routers run Linux. You just put the router in your network and you forget about it. As long as it's working, there's no reason to look look at it. And I think that's what they could be leveraging here. I've seen. Uh, I think I've seen the GRU do this before. I've seen North Korea do this, and the technique is. You get into the network through one of their routers, one of their VPNs, like uh, ransomware actors love VPNs. They run Linux. They have a lot of privileged access to the internal network. And I'm thinking is like, they're just trying to hide in one of the Linux devices, which has a solid foothold in the network. Then anything they do to pivot to the network, if it fails, like let's say they drop a cobalt strike be uh, beacon to one of the Windows machines and it gets detected and removed, then they're gonna they're not necessarily gonna notice it came from their router. So um then you still have a foothold in the network and you can just keep trying again until you get in. And I just think it could be that they're exploiting the fact that Linux devices on networks are very rarely looked at, yet they have so much access. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, another alternative is they may have been targeting a specific industry that is heavy on using Linux um servers or machines or there's data that they want that they know is hosted on linux servers or linux databases somewhere yeah that's uh that's definitely possible but the the kernel version makes me think that these are not typical servers unless people don't update their linux kernels i feel like when you install a server it, it's fairly easy to update the kernel the only stuff that gets out of date is the routers where you're not going in and installing the regular kind you're of assuming updates. you're assuming a lot that linux admins update their servers as often as windows i mean i feel like i update linux more because it's just you type one command and you don't even need a reboot it's just done whereas windows it's like we're just going to shit out your whole system you're going to reboot you in the middle of a stream or a game and it's just so inconvenient that I, I hate doing Windows updates because I have to close everything, I have to reboot my machine, I have to open everything back up again. Whereas Linux, you rarely even need to restart. It's just like done. So like honestly, I, I would think people would update Linux more than Windows. I don't know. Just from, from what I hear, uh, whenever we have to push Unix machines to, to patch and update, the Unix ad and Linux admins are always screaming, kicking, like, oh my God, we don't know if the server will boot up again after this update. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, isn't that just the Windows life is updates breaking the boot? 
I don't know. It seems like Linux and Unix admins are much more skittish about that than Windows. Yeah, Windows just do it and then they leave you to deal with the consequences. It's like, that, that ah, could be I it may take your thing, but it's a, it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. You okay there, Gabs? Yeah. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out why my internet's broken. Is it still blinking, Amber? Yeah, and there's like a lot of stuff I need to get done this weekend, so this is not good. I'm not happy. I have to finish writing that chapter this weekend. How am I going to do that without <laughs> internet? You have a hotspot. Uh, until a certain point, and then it gets throttled. Oh, that's right, yeah. You can go to a coffee shop. Well, are coffee shops open yet over there? So I was actually planning on going to one tomorrow anyway because they're not sitting inside, but they have a patio that they're letting people sit at. So oh, I nice. might, uh, I might try and check it out because I miss like I used to work at coffee shops a lot. Like I had a lot of favorites, like in my hometown and stuff, and um, I that would be my way of getting work done on the weekends. Like I would go to a coffee shop. Like there's no TV distraction. There's no whatever else like i don't know i feel like when i sit there and like try and get work done on the weekends i'm like oh shit i need to like put a little laundry in and then like i'm like oh i'm gonna wipe down the kitchen counter and like <laughs> two hours later i still haven't gotten myself done so it kind of takes away that distraction for me and i like the atmosphere so we'll see mm -hmm. but okay so maybe i'll maybe i'll switch over to the next the last infosec topic which is the whole spy key thing So something Hi. else that was in the news, um, I guess this week as well, uh, that came up was SpyKey, which is a research project where people were able to figure out the bidding on a key based on the sound it makes as you insert the key into a lock. Because as you're inserting the, the key, the bidding inter, inter, interact with the pins and it creates a clicking sound and there's almost like a cadence to that clicking. And based on that sound or audio recording, you could narrow down what the key bidding is, which, which is kind of cool. Um, it's, it's, you're basically uh, deriving the key from sound. Uh, and I know a couple of years ago, there was research where you could take a picture of a key and using processing, you can enhance the image and create the profile of the key to, for the bidding. So this just takes it up to another level. Well, now that you don't even need a picture, you just need the sound that it makes as you enter the key. Um, I mean, I think there was a lot of, there was a lot of buzz around it because everyone's like, oh my God, keys are not secure again, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's that infotech thing that just happens where someone comes up with this insanely overcomplicated theoretical attack and everyone's like, oh my God, this is the craziest thing ever. X thing is ruined, it's now insecure. When in reality, like, okay, I can record you putting in your key into the lock. I could also just walk up to the lock and, and then it. map out the inside. I could x-ray it. It's like, if I know where your physical house is, I can get in. And it just seems like such an impractical, and like, it's cool, don't get me wrong, but it just does not seem like it ruins the security of keys yeah, or whatever. It is, it is a very cool thing, but I would not worry about it. I don't feel any less secure just because, I mean, I'm uh, the big yeah. thing that I do in the in, in the hacker community is, is lock picking. So I already know how easy it is to pick locks. But at the same time, I'm not afraid of it. I'm not worried about it because candidly, someone who's trying to break into my place, they're not going to pick my lock. They're going to smash my window. You kick the, kick the door down or something. Yeah, so... I didn't, do you remember the guy who was talking about how he could figure out anyone's password just by listening to them type? 
that's actually quite an easy one because your keyboard is like it has a lot of space between it and based on the direction of the mic you can you can figure out distance from the mic in any uh, angle at, at least if you have enough uh, inputs so uh, I don't know if it works with a single channel mic but if you have uh, enough different reference points you can basically map their entire keyboard and see which keys they're hitting we should do that sometime. I'll have like me type random words, and you can see what you guys can guess what I'm typing. But again, it's, it's the, extremely um, impractical. I mean, there are probably. But it's cool. It's cool, but it's very impractical. And, yeah. and I would say people should not worry about stuff like this. It reminds me of a couple of things. There was one guy who wrote malware, which, uh, like, when your hard disk is active, it makes the LED blink. Yes, I remember and, that. Yes. Yeah. So they were sending data out through making the LED blink. And it's like, when is anyone ever going to do this? <laughs> and then there was another one where um, if you, do you know the Amazon Alexa? It has like the entire, there's mics around the entire outside so that it can cross-reference the sound and basically uh, pick out your voice from background noise. And someone found that it has so many so sensitive mics that you could actually map out the entire room by the sound refactoring off the walls. And like, it's insanely cool thing. When is it ever going to be useful? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. There's, there's definitely a lot of cool research and I, I don't want to discourage that kind of research because it, it adds to the body of knowledge where maybe something like this will become practical in a different field or in a different way. Mm -hmm. But people should not be afraid. People should not be, oh my God, I need keys now that don't make sounds or something. <laughs> you can't sit there and be afraid of everything. Like there are people out there that are like, oh my God, like I'm never going to go in the ocean. I'm going to get bitten by a shark. I'm never going to fly on an airplane. And like, I don't know, the, the probability of something like any of these happening, like badly to so you low. is so low. Like you can't let statistics and things that you hear scare you out of living your life yeah, well, I think the way, the... the way I live is um I can stay in my house wrapped in like a a blanket avoiding all dangers or if I go outside me being scared and wary or anxious about a danger does not impact the likelihood of that thing killing me like nope. me going in the sea being scared of sharks does not affect whether a shark will attack me or not so then why think about it? Like I could walk outside and a fucking anvil falls from a plane and kills me. Like I'm not worried about that because if it happens, it happens. Whether I worry about it or not does not affect the outcome. I would rather just live happy and carefree and then randomly die when a piano falls from a 30th uh, floor window. Or you can just like live in fear and like never get anything done and just not enjoy life. That's why I, I don't like a lot of bloggers and people who write for some of these tech blogs and, and websites because they always add a element of fear uncertainty doubt and destruction to every new thing that comes out to i don't know maybe it's clickbait or maybe just to get I mean, readership. that's how you sell it it's marketing i know but it's it's so stupid I, I that's why i don't like how i almost don't i mean i know it's journalism but i almost don't consider it journalism because it's not really objective either uh but it it does not do the public service. All you're doing is freaking people out unnecessarily. People who don't fully understand the topic now think that, oh my God, I can't, I need to get rid of my locks and I need silent locks or whatever it might be. <laughs> it's, 
it's similar to bad infosec advice when people say, hey, when you go to DEF CON, you should not bring your phone or you just turn off your phone. I mean, really, no one's, <laughs> no one's burning on a zero day, burning a zero day on you, buddy. Yeah. No, and the case in point, the NordVPN commercials, they're showing them on oh every God. channel now. And they're like, save yourself from hackers and all this stuff. And you're just like, my parents were like, do, you, do we need a VPN? Like, it's causing people to worry. <laughs> and I'm like, probably not. Like, you're probably good. But I mean, even like I saw a, a commercial the other day, like, I think it's Experian. They do like a dark web scan for credit stuff now. Yeah, Experian. Like, oh, my God. But um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's that's great and fine. But like, don't make people feel like they are in danger well, and have to is, buy a project. Is VPN, like it stands for virtual private network. The purpose of it was to introduce you to a network remotely. It was never designed to mask your IP. And they've come up with this new use of VPNs. And the only way to market it is to scare people. Like it, there is no reason to use a VPN that masks your IP. Like if you're a criminal trying to hide your IP from the government, a VPN is not going to save you. If you're trying to hide from advertisers or whatever, well, spoiler alert, they're paying the VPN companies for their data. Um, and it's just like, they've just built this entire sphere that they need to scare people into joining because without it like vpns there's like three people who would need a vpn to hide their ip everyone else can just use like fucking tor or something and uh, i think that's why especially like the nord commercials and that are so scary is because that is the only way they can sell this completely useless product I mean, what other type of bad infosec advice have you guys heard of before besides turn off your phone at DEF CON or you must use a VPN? <laughs> um, I've heard so many, but I just can't think of any right now for some reason. Yeah, some people are like really, I've even seen some from like decently respected. Like, I don't know if people just have like a hidden agenda or like... It's they actually agendas, believe this stuff yeah is you have like you have like a very like you have the majority of the population just will follow whatever someone who calls themselves an expert says but the experts themselves they have an agenda that's like that's how QAnon is a thing like QAnon is this conspiracy group that a lot of the population deep well not a lot but like enough people to be scary deeply deeply believe in but they found the people behind QAnon and they were just doing it for financial gain. They wanted clicks on their YouTube channel. And so often I find the people who are, who are saying the things, they have an agenda, but the people who are believing them don't. And then they go and parrot on those things to others. And you don't realize that all of this thing stems from this person who wanted to do a very specific thing. I think part of it is also, especially in our industry, it's ego. Some people want oh, yeah, to definitely. be the expert. They want people to, it, it excites them that people listen to them and do what they say. I, I think that's part of it as well. So homework, let's all go back through and collect the bad infosec advice we've seen and gotten. And we'll do an episode special on that. And we'll just, <laughs> I it, like this plan. It can be like debunking your bad infosec myths or whatever. Like, just... Oh yeah, that could be a special episode. I think this would, wouldn't that this be, would be better as a series, like not even part of the podcast, like an individual series that people just watch for that. Probably. Well, viewers, you tell us, what do you think? Would you like this to be an independent uh series or do you want it to be and a special also, episode also send us any dubious information you've heard 
um, has anyone told you something that you were like, is that really true? Or like, is this something I need to be worried about? Or that you just don't know a lot about or sounds sketchy? Send us all now, of your sketchy info. My, now, my disclaimer is I, at least for myself, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm not an expert in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I'm just I'm just a guy who um who has a job. I'm not an expert in any 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 specific things. I'm a girl, so I don't have enough of a brain to be an expert in anything. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, that that reminds me. In the beginning, you had this description about what was it uh, a charity case? You know, you, what's body, the positivity yeah, body positive charity, charity case. case. What's, what's the background with that? That's my new nickname. Uh, I don't know. There was this dude like. I've never talked to him in my life, so I don't really know where he came from, but he just, like, appeared and started, like, posting really shitty stuff about me, and then, like, was claiming that I asked him out, and then, like, he declined, and I got really mad and stalkery, and I was like, dude, I literally don't know who you are. He has, he has mental issues. There's been, like, a couple of them now. One is actually a clinically diagnosed psychopath. Yeah, yep. And I know who you're talking about, but, yeah. um, he proceeded to continue to rant and fight with people for 27 hours straight and that was the kind of scary part like why is this guy that i don't know and have never talked to so uh, hell-bent on yelling about me for a day over a day like what what is going on there that's all we have time for i think we're going to do a twitter poll but also in the comments let us know do you prefer it when we talk about more tech or more real life stuff uh like what would like what's the your ideal balance for a podcast? Um, we are thinking of maybe doing a live Q and A podcast in like the next two or three weeks. So uh, let us know when would be best for that. Um, uh, thank you for joining us again, Tran and Gabs.